Welcome again to Fat Free Film. This is the 53rd episode. As our guest today, we have Oscar winner Bruce Cohen. Yes, we do. Bruce and I know each other for longer than, than I will say on the air. Well, I'll say. No, don't. <laughs> don't. But we know each other from college. We both went to Yale, and Camelot was the star of my senior graduate, uh, my graduation senior film project, which was called Camilla. But Camilla's name is spelled with a K, and we spelled Camilla in the movie with a C because it was a fictionalized version of Camilla's life. We didn't feel like we wanted to have to stick to the facts. But um, someday you can all, I'll show all of you, Camilla, the one hour video. We'll have to put that on the website. Yeah, I don't think so. My mom still hasn't seen it. It's, It's... Probably NC-17, at least for drug use and sexual right. content. Oh, Lord, have mercy on my soul. All right, we're starting off the holiday <laughs> episode, starting it off right. Um, Bruce, one of the things that I want to ask you about in the beginning here is um, about the DGA program that you were in when you, I guess, when you first got to Hollywood. Yes, I, that's actually how I got my start out here. I had majored in film at Yale. I had my brilliant film, Kamala, under my belt. And um, I actually had gotten an internship out here at Warner Brothers. My father knew someone there, nepotism at its finest. And, but what, what, the internship was just an uh, assistant job in an office uh, um, doing in the distribution department. And uh, I started hearing about the Directors Guild has a training program to train people to be assistant directors. Um, and so I found someone who was in the training program who was shooting a movie on the Warner Brother lot and went and met him and followed him around for the day, and it looked like a really great job. The a- I, I, th- I thought that ADing was... I could see that it was creative, but it was really organizational, and that's always been something that I, I've been good at and like to do. So I just had a sense that it, I would love it, and so I applied to the program and was lucky enough to get in. It's... They only take they take like ten people out of every a thousand that apply every year. So, it's 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 not a you can't make it your plan. Like that's how I'll break in is I'll go into the training program because the odds are really long. But I was fortunate that I got in, and so that's how I got my start in in the business. You you've told me a story before about some of the kinds of questions that are on that test that are pretty remarkable and it involves like being able to solve problems very quickly, problems that are rather huge and seemingly insurmountable. Can you give us an example? Well, the weirdly, the questions are not really film related. There's a couple of there are, there are a couple of questions of like what would you do if and actually mine I happen to remember was what would you do if it was a Sunday and you suddenly needed to find hundreds of African-American extras? Um, and church. church, right, was, I guess, the right answer to that question. But most of it was just regular, regular questions of what they do is they borrow from standardized tasks, SATs, psychological profiles, all, there's all sorts of tests, and they just use those tests but they cut the time that you have to do them in half, is, which is what you were remembering. So it's, it's not how many you can get right, it's how fast you can work, which I do feel like was a, is a pretty good idea for getting a gauge on trainees because it's very intense and the hours are really long and there's a lot of stamina involved. And the test 
was it it was it's 12 hours long and i i would would guess that the last couple of hours of the day really separate the men from the boys the women from the girls as far as who was able to push themselves to keep working as fast as you can because you were never you were never going to get through the whole test so it was you know you were you were not just in competition of how many answers you got correct you're in competition of how far you could get in the test so it was just pushing yourself to keep going keep going as fast as you could for 12 hours which was miserable actually so were there were there a lot of people taking the test all at once or did they select a certain amount of people in them Yes, they take every, the everyone takes the test. All, all 1,100 people take the test all at once in, at USC in these huge classrooms. I guess they divide you up by the name of your alphabet, and, and you're all taking the test. And then they winnow it down, and the top... When I, this was um, not to give Kamala's age away, but this was in 1984 that I was taking the test. So it was a long time ago, because um, Kamala's very, very old. And... Um, <laughs> At the time, there were, you just they you took the test, and then the top like f- fifty test takers went to an interview, and they decided from there. But now, I think there's a two or three step process where there's a couple different eliminations, and there's there's an, an interim step where they everyone has to go and spend the day together, and they observe you getting along with others or something. I've heard I've only heard rumors of that. <laughs> Is that a prerequisite of making films that you have to get along with others? Uh, yes. It absolutely is. I mean, film is, uh, as we all know, an extremely collaborative art, and it's all it's all about people skills. I mean, every you can boil down every job, but but how well you can communicate with and get along with and get what you need from all the people around you um, is is definitely key to 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 being successful in the film business. After you got into this program at the Directors Guild, what happened then? I mean, what did you do in this program? Well, they, it's, it's a, if you get in, it's a fantastic program because they assign you work. And it's a, you get paid. So it's like school, but, but it's really on-the-job training. And um, the first job that I got assigned to was Hill Street Blues, which was um, a phenomenal place to start. I learned so much and came in. It was like the fifth season. So by that point, people were, it was a hit by then and was, um, had won all, lots of Emmys and had really, people felt creatively it had really changed the shape of one hour drama. So it was, they, they were very proud of what they were doing and there was a very high quality standard and which was very exciting to come into. And um, the first day they were just like, here, this is your job, go. And I remember thinking like, well, who doesn't anyone tell me like, where's my training? And they're like, no, 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 no. You're, you just start doing the work. So you really get thrown in, but it was, it was a lot of fun, very exciting, really hard work. And then I, um, the second job, it's a comma, it's film and television back and forth. And then the second job that I was, I had to go interview for, but ended up getting the interview was The Color Purple. So that was also a huge break because um, that was directed by Steven Spielberg and um, produced by Kathy Kennedy and Frank Marshall. And I've had a long association with Steven and Kathy and Frank um, pretty much ever since in varying ways and did a lot of, it's, I really, I came up through the ranks working for either Steven or Kathy and Frank or all three of them from a trainee to a second assistant director to first assistant director to producing. Is that a, a common leap to go from AD to producer? No, it's extremely uncommon, um, as a matter of fact, which I think is a huge mistake because 
first ADing is you're really the field commander of the movie, and the director is busy directing the actors and putting all of the thing together, and especially on the big studio movies, but on any movie, really, you know, they are so relying on if they have a great first AD, the first AD to be organizing everything. And so you learn as the first on a very organic level, you understand exactly how movies get made, what everyone is supposed to be doing, how all of the jobs come together and how the actual process of showing up at the beginning of the day each morning and getting all the work done that needs to get done to put the movie together. So I have found that to, as a creative producer, my first AD experience has been completely extraordinary as far as how helpful it's been, especially because it's so unusual because there hardly any other creative producers were ever first ADs and hardly any first ADs get to be creative producers. I just got to be, I got really, really lucky because Stephen and Kathy and Frank actually believed in me and gave me the chance to make that leap. But um, ordinarily first ADs end up First, first ADing in itself is a career, so people stay as first ADs for a lot of their career. They may become production managers, and sometimes they make it to line producer, but it's very rare that they get to create and produce. So if you're interested in, in producing, I don't recommend ADing, actually, as a job path necessarily, but it's one of the really exciting yet really frustrating things about this business is that there are no paths to anywhere you know it's not like medicine or law or finance where you get this job and you do this training and you're on this track and then you get promoted and then you get to do this and this in the film business we all have to create our each unique own path to get where we want to go and so it's very hard to figure out you know it's not as easy as calling someone up and saying okay well I want to be a writer how do I do that you know everyone sort of has to figure it out for themselves to some extent. So was that um, production, the leap into producing that was helpfully um, given to you, was that the Flintstones? Well, I initially, um, the I was Stephen's first assistant director on Hook, um, which was a huge production. Wow. And um, Kathy Kennedy, and it was really her idea, but then she talked to Stephen. They gave me the associate producer credit on, credit on Hook because they they felt like I was really doing a lot of stuff above and beyond first ADing. Um, and from that, um, Kathy and Frank got ready to uh, uh, do a live, which was going to be the second movie that Frank directed. The first movie that Frank directed was Arachnophobia, and I had been the first assistant director on Arachnophobia. That was the first movie that I was the first AD on. Then I was the first AD on Hook. Then Kathy and Frank got ready to do a live, and they wanted me to first AD, but also take a producing credit and sort of learn producing more. And based on my experience from Hook, I really felt like first ADing is a full-time job in and of itself. And I sat down with with them and really and, and asked to produce. I, I said, I really, I feel like you could, I don't want to just take a producing credit again and first AD. I, I want to really learn producing. And could I just do that? And Frank actually said, if you know that, if you know a first who's as good or better than you, that you can get me, then yes, you can. And fortunately, Ketterly Fraunfelder, who's this wonderful friend of mine who had, I had trained with her. I had been her second AD when she was a first. 
I said, yes, I do have a first who's as good or better than me. She taught me everything I know. And so Ketterly ended up being the first AD on Alive, and Frank and Kathy gave me a chance to. Um, my, my title was co-producer, but I really got to do a lot of, I really got to learn from Kathy the producing ropes. And then while we were shooting Alive, Stephen and Kathy got ready to do the Flintstones, and they came to me and they said, we'd like you to produce, we think you're ready, and that we're going to let you produce this movie, and this will be your first producing break. So... It's just like completely ridiculous how that all happened. And unfortunately, is highly unusual in this business that people just let other people get to realize their dreams and goals. But in my case, I was very, very blessed that I had people who let me do that. Well, let's not be too modest. Obviously, you were doing huge amounts of work and you were doing them extremely well and they saw that you could they could you could make their lives easier and their production better. Well, that's true, but unfortunately, what happens so often in this business that the better you are at your job, the more people need you to stay in that job. And they, you know, you you become so valuable to them as a first AD that the better an AD you are, the less they want to let you try something else. That happens a lot. And so I feel like I was really lucky with Stephen, Kathy, and Frank that they they were they were willing to let me go. As much as Stephen loved having me first AD hook, he was happy to let me go do something else, and which would meant for him then then he had to find a new first AD for his next movie. And a lot of times. People aren't willing to do that, so I got lucky in that respect. I would say that uh, when I talk to people who are not in the film industry, a lot of times they ask what a gaffer is, what a grip is, all these things, but more often than not, they say, what is a producer? And I know there's a producer encompasses a, a lot of different skill sets and a lot of different ways people go about doing it. Can you talk to this, um, what is a producer? And, and in fact, um, Kathy Kennedy, I think, is the head of the Producers Guild, is she not? Kathy was the president of the Producers Guild, and she actually um, finished her term recently, and Marshall Herskovitz took over. He's the new president, and I'm actually the vice president for motion pictures now of the Producers Guild. Um, and even my mother had trouble figuring out what a producer does. But, they, well, there's a lot of, there's no, there isn't one easy answer to that, but there isn't one easy answer to what a director does either. You know, I mean, there's a lot of uh, writing and acting, I think is sort of easier for people to understand, but directing and producing, it's, uh, and the relationship between those two jobs is very complex and really changes. No two, on no two films do the producer and the director do exactly the same thing. And a lot of that is driven by who the producer is, who the director is, and who the material, what the material is. But what I like to say is that the producer is really the CEO of, of the company that is formed to produce that movie. And that's actually true in, in, in almost all cases, even on a studio movie, each movie, you, you form a corporation, an LLC, a partnership that's specifically a production company that's going to be in charge, that's just doing that, the, a business entity that exists to get that movie made. And the producer is the CEO of that company. And so you're in charge of uh, every aspect of the production, the budget, the schedule, um, and all of the creative uh, the, the creative side. It's different um, studio movies and independent movies um, or movies with independent financing operate differently. 
Um, with independent or independent financing movies, very often the producer is, is also responsible for putting the money together and actually raising it at times. On a studio film, uh, the studio is bankrolling you. They're giving you the money, but then you're in charge of how it's spent. Um, and then, of course, they're, they're, you know, the, the director really in, uh, is the creative vision of the film. The director's dealing with performances. The line producer is the person actually um, in charge of the budget. But the studio is what the studio is looking to the creator producer to ultimately be the person responsible for the film as a whole. And if there's a problem with the creative aspect, if there's a problem with the director, if there's a problem with the money, if there's a problem with the schedule, if there's a problem with the script, um, the producer is the person that they call first and uh, expect you to fix it for them somehow. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, one of the, greatest projects that you have been responsible for to date is American Beauty, which won Best Picture. And the producer, as producer, you received, you and Dan um, Jenks received the award for Best Film. Tell us a little about the germination of that project, how it came together, and a just a little bit about the history of that film. The uh, American Beauty was truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience as far as how it came together, how um, stunning the original script by Alan Ball was, and, and it was really kind of a rocket out of hell f how fast it all happened because the script was so powerful and so undeniable that um, most people read it and saw sort of immediately it, its potential. Um, we had gotten it as a spec screenplay, which is something that happens a lot, especially in the studio system, where a writer will write a script completely on their own and for free and have received no money. And they're therefore the full owner of the script and sort of the master of its future. And then they um, send this, the, the agent of the writer will send the script out to a variety of producers. Um, the producers that like it will um, ask to take the script into certain studios, and often what happens is different producers will take a, the same script into lots of different studios, and then whoever ends up, whichever studio or financial entity ends up getting the rights to make the movie, the producer that brought it to that place ends up producing the film. So in the case of uh, American Beauty, we had the project only for DreamWorks, but we were we had just formed our own company. I had produced um, two or three movies at that point. Dan had produced a film called Nothing to Lose with Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence. But we were still sort of baby producers. We didn't have a production deal anywhere. We just had a good relationship with DreamWorks. So it would have been very easy for um, Andrew's agency, UTA, to have given the script to an established producer with a producing deal at DreamWorks. But um, Alan's agent, Andrew Canava, had known Dan for a long time and, and, and knew me as well. And he gave us a break and gave us a chance. And also knew that, that we had a strong relationship at DreamWorks because of my history with Steven. Um, so we, when we, we were given the script, we read it overnight. Both Dan and I individually thought that it was the best script that we'd ever read. And that was the reaction that it kept getting as we brought it into DreamWorks. And we brought it into a great executive, uh, Glenn Williamson, who's a friend of ours, continues to be and he thought he loved it and he gave it to Bob Cooper who was president of production at the time and he gave it to Spielberg and Bob later told us he didn't need Steven's permission to buy the script 
but he needed Steven's permission to greenlight the movie. And he, Bob also felt, he, he felt that the script, and Bob had been at HBO and had really been sort of the renaissance of HBO. So he was known for, for daring quality product. And he, in his, he really believed the script was too good to just buy it to then later find out that DreamWorks wasn't going to make it or didn't want to do it. So he showed Steven and Steven flipped over it as well. And so we were off and running pretty quickly. And then um, we made a bold and exciting choice to hire Sam Mendes to direct it, who um, had never done a movie before. But he was really very well regarded as probably the leading theater director in the world at that point. Had done a lot of work in London and had just directed the revival of Cabaret on Broadway, which is very well received. And Did you come up with that idea or... Or how did that come up? Well, we, Dan and I knew of his work from the theater and had seen Cabaret. And then Stephen simultaneously had also seen Cabaret and thought that it had a um, tremendous cinematic uh, feel to it. So there was actually, it's funny because a lot of people, people outside of the business always say, like, how did Sam Mendes get that job? And a lot of people inside the business said at the time, how did you get Sam Mendes to direct your movie? Because Sam had been, was very sought after at that point to direct his first feature, was offered a lot of big movies and had turned a lot of them down because he was really waiting to make his cinematic debut with a piece of material that really spoke to him. And because the script was so strong, so many directors were interested and we were interested in so many directors that um, Dan and I and Alan Ball ended up taking meetings with probably about 30 or 40 directors, which is highly unusual. Like you've, we, we've never done that before since. And very rarely would you ever actually hear the takes of that many directors. But in this case, so many people wanted to to do it, and we learned relatively soon in that process that it was a tremendously helpful and and fascinating process because no two directors, not only do they not only do they did none of the did not any of them have the same vision, but they didn't even have the same approach to how they wanted to talk about the film or their job which actually links back to, you know, the directing job being so different. Each one of the 40 directors had a completely unique approach, even to the meeting of like what they were talking about and how they would talk about how they direct and how they would direct American Beauty. And of all of them, Sam was just the one who, right from the beginning, spoke exactly the language that we had sort of envisioned. It just sounded like he got the movie and had the had an idea of how he wanted to do it. And it felt very clear to us that it was, it was the chance to take. And we, the, the, the script was so bold and weird and strange and out there that we really tried to make bold choices in the spirit of that throughout the process. And we'd kind of try and remind ourselves, you know, don't take, don't make the safe decision on any issue regarding the film because that is completely contrary to what we all love about the movie so sam just really seemed like the right idea was there any talk of changing something like you were saying make the boldest decisions were there people trying to prevent you like i know at the end the kids go off to sell drugs the um there there's kind of an idea of uh i don't know uh 
I guess, lusting after someone who's not of age. You know, there's certain things, themes in the in the movie that I would think a lot of executives might go, oh, whoa, we can't do that kind of thing. A lot of studio executives. Did you have trouble with that? Well, in the in the in the original script, as a matter of fact, um, uh, Lester does sleep with Angela, and the so um, the epiphany that he has right before he's killed is that he got his his lustful dream of of sleeping with this underage girl did come true which is a, a very different movie and almost unimaginable um in retrospect that that could ever have been made into a film and how much it would have changed the the film and alan had even in preliminary discussions you know dan and i and alan had already sort of talked about the fact that that was, you know, the ending he had written as a, again, really bold choice on paper, but that wouldn't necessarily be the ending to the movie. But making creative choices like that is a very slippery slope. And Alan wanted to make sure that he was only going to make changes because he wanted to and not because anyone was telling him you can't have drug use, you can't have show breasts of 17-year-olds, you know, on and on and on and on. In the, the, the day that we went to meet uh, with Bob Cooper and hear his plan for the film at DreamWorks, there were some other um, companies interested, but DreamWorks was the only big studio. Um, it was independent uh, companies and some discretionary funds. And Alan was very worried about going with the big studio for exactly the reason that you said. And in the, in the uh, Bob Cooper meeting, uh, Bob was trying to assure Alan that um, he would be able to make the movie he wanted to make. On the way out of the meeting, we fortuitously and coincidentally ran into Stephen, who was leaving Amblin. I introduced Stephen to Alan Ball, and because we had found out in the, in the meeting that Stephen had read the script the night before and supposedly had loved it, although we didn't really know if that was true, but that's what we had told. So we, we took the gamble that it was true. And Stephen had, in fact, read it and loved it. And in his um, extremely passionate and eloquent discussion with Alan as to why he thought it was such a magnificent film, he said to Alan, don't change a frame. You shoot it right the way it is. We'll make it right now, right here the way you want to make it. So that actually gave Alan the um, freedom to make that change because he didn't have to if he didn't want to. Want to. And so, no, based on um, Stephen's initial promise to us, um, we were quite clear from the beginning that we were going to be able to make exactly the movie we wanted to make, which is also highly unusual and one of the other magical things about the film. How did you handle a theater director that had not had much... Uh cinematic experience uh how did you handle the shots in the movie are beautiful obviously sam mendes you know in a lot of his road to perdition and a lot of these movies are beautiful movies but since it was his first film how did you uh, you know help him along with that well uh conrad hall ended up being our cinematographer the the late magnificent conrad hall who already had one oscar and i think eight nominations throughout his career but um, proudly, American Beauty was definitely sort of the um, 
helped the renaissance of his career, although he had done Civil Action the year before. He hadn't done any films for a while. He had done Civil Action the year before, was nominated for an Oscar, did American Beauty, won the Oscar for American Beauty, and then did Road to Perdition, his last film, and won the Oscar again for Road to Perdition. So the the two-film Sam Mendes-Conrad Hall collaboration was really quite special and a, and a, a really amazing way for Conrad to end this extraordinary career. And he came to us... And and the the um, we were trying to approach the movie in an independent fashion. We didn't have a lot of money to make it, and we had we didn't have a lot of money to pay a big DP. And we would all assume, oh, we all assumed that we'd find some young, up and coming, cutting edge talent. And Conrad Hall, who was extremely expensive and known to not be the fastest DP in the world, and had a huge lighting package, and you know was com- the complete opposite of that. And but he came in and. In the meeting, that's how he opened. He said, you're thinking that I am the absolute wrong choice for this movie, when in fact, I am the absolute perfect choice for this movie. And if you give me the chance to do this, I will reinvent for you something completely new, something completely special within your budget, and it'll be the best choice you've ever made. And I had to call the DreamWorks production person, Michael Grillo, and say to him, guess who we want to hire to be our DP? He's like, who? And I said, Conrad Hall. And there was just a silence on the other end. <laughs> and I, but I said to him, I go, Michael, believe me, that was our reaction too. But sit down with him and you just see if you don't want to hire him after the meeting the way we do. And he did. And we did. And, but I will also say, and it was one of the, there's been lots of um, going back to talking about earlier about how handy first ADing came in. And this was one of the really funnest ways is that um, from the first day of prep, Dan and I were with Sam every single minute. And so I, and, and Sam was actually very wonderful about, you know, he really knew what he didn't know and he wanted to learn as much as he could about how filmmaking was done. And I was a valuable resource because I had been an assistant director. And so I, I kind of knew exactly, I knew everything that Sam knew about directing because I had been there for the prep and heard him talk and knew what his, knew what his knowledge was. And we would be on the set even from the first week. Someone would ask him a question that I would know for a fact he did not know the answer to. And he would intuit the answer and it was so right. He had a natural ability that just blew my mind. And I remember just thinking even that first week, I mean, I was like, this guy is going to be an absolutely astonishing film director because his instincts just were right on. Um, So, and it never felt like he was a first time director. I mean, it always felt like he knew exactly what he was doing and knew how to approach stuff. And then I think also it was a real, again, to the help, to the boldness and spirit of the film, it was so helpful to have someone who had no preconceived notions about what could be done and what couldn't be done. You know, the sky was the limit as far as Sam was concerned. And a lot of that, I think, shows in the film. You, um, of all of the people that I know in the business and of all, probably of all the guests that we've had, are the most savvy in the ways of the beast, the beast being the studio system. Um, 
And you also are extremely savvy in the ways of the independent film world. Uh, Bruce just produced a, a small film that John August directed um, that just got accepted into Sundance called The Nines. Correct. So what I'd like you to kind of free form with a little bit for us because a lot of our listeners myself included don't really understand how the studio system works what the studio system is it's it's somewhat of a a mysterious sort of entity like the big bad establishment and what you know what the differences are can you talk a little about that well one of the perspectives that I have, which I wouldn't change for anything, having come up as an assistant director, is the, is the, the perspective of seeing, uh, of production, the actual shooting of the movie being where it all starts and where it happens from. I mean, of course, you have to write the script before that. But but the 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 shooting is really to me what it's all about and that is where the real work and art takes place and all the politics and the agents and the managers and the lawyers and the deal making and the beast all of the elements you know associated with the beast are all then pushed off stage and it's the crew and a camera and actors and the scenes for the day at crew call go. And that process, which is the, the magic of movie making and the real work, not all of the accoutrements that have grown up to surround this huge multinational corporate industry, that, that work is the same, I have found, no matter what... From the dinkiest student film through the $200,000 independent movie to through the $250 million Pirates of the Caribbean, that process is essentially the same. How many people are there and how much money you have and the type of shots you're making change, but no two shots are ever the same on anything. So that's, that's a given that your shots are different. And the process itself is 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 i think um thankfully gloriously the same and the other thing that's always the same is you never have enough money and you never have enough time i think that's one of the that's one of the um biggest mistaken notions that independent film people have about the studio system is you know oh my god you know i can't like if if i had 100 million dollars it would just be luxury and it's like no, actually, you, the, the, the percentage of what you have compared to what you actually need is you never have what you need. And so that, that pressure... That doesn't make any well, sense. Because you're, I think the reason why is because it's the um, conflict between art and business and the artist always wants more. So however much you've, that whatever you've, whatever they give you, you, there's, it's never enough to do what you want to do. And because they never get at the studio, they never give you what you want or what you need. If you, if you said, well, I need a hundred million dollars to make this movie, they say, okay, well you can have 75. That's just how it always works. So you're, you, you never, 
you're it's always a struggle to make the day you've always got a call sheet and you never have enough time and you're always in this frantic dash to get everything done and you're always trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole and and that's the art of it is like you're never you know you're not well let's just make it bad you know that's not how people that's not fortunately how people approach movie making it's like yeah but let's try and you know, do something amazing. It's, but yeah, but we don't have a crane today. Well, let's figure something out. You know, I, I don't want to just do this boring shot. It's like, but that's all we have. It's like, no, 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 no. I mean, then that's really the director's job to say, no, no, no. It needs to be better. It needs to be special. It needs to be more interesting. It needs to take more time than we have. It needs to cost more money than we can afford. And then it's the producer's job to, if, if you've done it right, it's to get get the creative vision that the director wanted, but somehow figure out a way to do it in the time and the budget that you've, that you've got. I have a, a question about where the industry is going. Um, because you look at the movies that are in the movie theaters, they're all very expensive movies. I mean, um, you have these huge, what they call tentpole pictures that are basically holding up um, every, every other movie that they call a little little $50 million romantic comedy. And then you have the, the Little Miss Sunshines, and the, which we saw last night, which we just loved, and movies that are probably like the one that you just made. Where's the room for the artist if things have to cost $200 million to get in a theater? Well, I, the... I think one of the governing principles of the film business certainly is today, but has always been chaos. There's no, it isn't organized and there's no guiding principle and there isn't anyone in charge making the rules. It's all just massive confusion. And so the, and, and everyone has a feeling right now that, the industry is in complete flux and that it's it's changing and no one knows what the future is going to be and the studios are only doing tent poles but there's all these independent financiers who are stepping in now and are financing or co-financing a lot of the studio movies that you're talking about which are the 50 million dollar movies and then there's the independent film and and everyone is in a bit of a panic as far as what is the business model going forward but my i i believe that if you look historically, that panic of what is the business model going forward has been since the very first day of this town. And there's always revolutionary changes from sound to color to effects to technicolor to digital to video to DVD to independent movies. There's always something new. And because no one's really steering the ship other than capitalism, you know, it's really just the consumer is what's sort of driving it, um, you know, no one knows from day to day what's going to happen, which is really scary. And but it's also sort of how, you know, art gets made. It's for me, I think it's also why it's another reason to return to the shooting period, because I can't control any of that. I can't control whether what movies are going to get made, how much money they're going to get, what my next film is going to be, what's going to happen to the rest of my career, what's going to happen to the film business, whether Blu-ray is going to be the format, whether stars will get $80 million. Like, none of that is under my control. 
But if I can get a movie to that first day of shooting, I can show up on the set and I can work like hell for those shooting days to try and make that movie the best movie that it can possibly be. And that is the, that period where you get to do that is worth, for me, all of the massive panic and hysteria and bouts of insecurity and chaos that surround the rest of the time and this business in general. In the big studio films, do um, you have more time? I know you were talking about it, you don't have any time, but do you take more time to, to shoot a scene? Because somebody was saying to, to me recently that they were saying that on the studio films they have all this time to shoot one scene, whereas in, a, in a, an, an independent film you'll shoot many more pages in a day. Yes, that's true, but here's like a good example of, yeah, but it's the same crisis point no matter what, is you do, they, it does take a lot longer to shoot the scene, but often the time that's spent is on the lighting and the setup because the shots are more elaborate, the sets are more elaborate, and the lighting is more elaborate. The actors still get crunched and only have five takes because there's suddenly you're losing light or we're behind or there's this mad rush. Um, and so that's not always the case. There are certain directors who are famous for doing hundreds of takes, but of course for actors, they hate that too. Um, having worked now a bit in television and also done this independent film, you hear from actors a lot that they much prefer the, the faster the pace is, the better it is for them. The less time between the master and the close-ups and the less time it takes to actually shoot the scene, the more they can stay in the moment and really create something. The, the, the big studio movies where it can, it's an hour and a half of lighting between each shot is really hard on the actors. So that's, an, you know, that's like one example of how big luxury is not the, you know, isn't good necessarily but at all. Can you tell me something about um, you and Dan Jinks have produced several films now together and have your own company. Can you tell us how it is working two people together in several films like this? What is it that, uh, you know, how do you complement each other? The, well, we really, we have, we have found that a partnership is really a great way to go up against the windmill that is the business. You know, it's so hard and so all-consuming that there isn't a week that goes by where something really bad doesn't that something really bad doesn't happen and we don't think thank god there is someone else here to help figure out and deal with this crisis and also so when something really good happens and there's someone who you can share it with who really it, it, you know, is your partner and is a part of it. It's not like you can call your, you know, loved ones at home or your mom or your dad or your partner and be like, guess what? But that's, it's not the same as if you've worked for something and if you know the ins and outs of the struggle and with the person in the next office and then, you know, you make something happen. So at, at that's, I mean, producing is so comp complicated and difficult. It, I would be having now done it with Dan for nine years it, the idea of trying to do it on your own is really um, intimidating because there's so much to be done. And then also just for our business, you know, in, in the good periods when we're, when we're doing well and sort of hitting our stride, by definition, there is too much for one person to do. You know, we need to be in two places at once a lot. 
whenever we don't, we're both there. But whenever one of us, you know, one show has one thing going on and another project has something else going on, and you know, you, there's it's like, I need two of me. And then we're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> we have two of us. <laughs> That's convenient. Now, what about the, um, the fact that you have not directed your first movie yet, and I know that you've always wanted to direct. Is it possible that you would do something where Dan would produce for you or for you to direct something? I, I definitely um, plan on directing at some point. I'm, but it's, it's a bit of a, it'll be a bit of a conflict of interest just in that you really can't do both at the same time. I mean, you could, you could, you could produce and people do produce their own projects. I, there's no way that I'd want to do that. I mean, I, the, one of the struggles for me when I do direct will be to turn off the producing side and to really focus on the directing side. So I absolutely know for sure that I wouldn't want to produce my first thing, you know, maybe later on down the line. Although I really don't think, having come at it from the other way, I think in general it's a bad, it's a really bad idea. I think you, it's a really, it's a, it's a yin and yang thing. There, you know, there, it's very left brain, right brain, and that it's almost in a weird way, it's a conflict of interest for the same person to be doing both jobs. I think you really need a producer and a director. Although in most cases, when a director takes a producing credit, they're doing some function of the producing job, but then they also have someone who's actually producing the film for them. But um, so. So yes, I would want Dan to produce the project, but then it's also a matter of, it's also like a timing matter of, you know, but then what happens to the company and how does that all work? So, so I have um, continued to work with actors, do workshops, do stuff on my own. And then I, I figure that when the time is right and when I find a project that I really think, okay, this would be a great thing, then, then we'll figure out some way to make it work. But it's definitely something to look forward to and to be excited about in the future. I want to ask you um, how you select your projects. I know you've done a lot of varied things, Down With Love, uh, The Big Fish. How, how do you choose projects? Because you're going to have to live with them for a, a long time, and obviously each step that you take is, has an effect on how your company does, and there's a lot of money riding on it a lot of times. Uh, especially as a producer, you're you're the producer of the project for the rest of your life. I mean, it really, it will always follow you and you still get calls 15, 20 years later, you know, they want to do the 20th anniversary DVD that called the producer and they're like, you know, can you help us get so-and-so? So, so you, Dan and my goal is to, is to take on projects that we really do believe in incredibly strongly and feel passionately about and really do want to make the commitment to live with those projects for years and years and years and years. The tricky part, making that a little more difficult, though, is the, the, that unknown per, the unknown degree that a project can really grow and improve. And if you, were, if, if you were going to judge whether you loved a project enough based on the first read of the first draft, you know, those movies would come in once every 10 years. And, you know, what, 
augmenting it is stuff where that you're constantly getting where there's a good idea, but it's not really realized yet. You know, the script isn't really working, but there is something. It's just a, it, you, there's a magazine article that then needs to be made into a script. There is a piece of talent who wants to do something with you and you would love their acting and want to try and find something. And then it's trying to find the right project. So, you know, that's, that's, more of the job is the unknown of your developing stuff, as it's called, you know, without really knowing whether you're going to get there or where it's going to go. But you've got one or two or three parts of it that you're really excited about and you're hoping that it's going to go somewhere. But even there's even so many of those that you can do. So, you know, um, uh, deciding what we want to pursue is a big part of our um, job as producers, but Dan and I both really feel that the hardest part of our job is finding good material. I mean, it's more that we can't find enough stuff that we truly love and believe in and that you haven't seen before that is really unique and original, but that also has some commercial potential that you might imagine a studio being interested, but that isn't, you know, some third version of something. So, that's that's the struggle every day of like could this be something that might be interesting to us how do you judge whether something's going to be commercial or not uh, that's a really good question and a really hard question because we we, we feel like you know uh, several of our projects first and foremost american beauty was had no commercial potential no one was interested in it based on that at all including us I might add, you know, we loved it for the pure, weird, strange, indie feeling art of it. And then it ended up making $135 million domestic and $350 million worldwide. It was a, that which was um, very unusual then and a foreshadowing thing to come that a movie would make more internationally than it did domestic. Now, every big hit movie almost makes more money internationally than domestic. But in, in 1999, that was still very unusual. Um, so the, um, the conundrum of commerciality is on the one hand, the studio and marketing and branding belief that, um, if they've seen it before, you know, that's how, how will it be a big hit if people don't know what it is versus the, if you build it, they will come which is, you know, how, but how are you ever going to create that next new thing if you don't try something, something that hasn't been done before? So that's a constant struggle is to figure out um, how to do that. And I actually think that you were mentioning the tent poles. I, I see that as a real area of concern right now as far as the future of the business because the studios have backed themselves up into this corner where the tentpole movies are so expensive 150 to 200 million dollars that they will own that it's very hard for them now to pull the trigger on any of those movies unless they are sequels or um brand you know a, a, a comic book character something that that has a brand already in the audience knows but if you look at the biggest hits 
you know, that then became tentpole movies, the E.T. and Back to the Future and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jurassic Park. And, you know, none of those were that. The, the most, you know, the, the biggest film is the first one often. So th- in the past, studios had always, what they called the tentpole were new, exciting movies that no one had seen before. And now they're in this trouble where they've gotten so expensive that they're they're needing to make retreads, and I think that's that we're going to have to figure out a way that they can keep affording the new ones. It happened like Ripley's Believe It or Not was an example of this huge movie with Tim Burton and Jim Carrey that shut down because it was going to be too expensive because Paramount didn't feel like it was had an, you know it was ready to go or had enough potential, and so. That's happening more and more, that it's hard to get movies that aren't sequels up and running when they're that big. So also you're producing television from what I understand. Yes. Can you tell us about that experience? Um, Television has been very exciting. It's something that we had wanted to get into and the timing was just right to really dive into it full force in the last year or two. And um, we have a, a one-hour TV drama thriller on AB, that's going to come up, come on ABC mid-season, probably in March, called Traveler. Which um, I, I just have to say, I read a lot of pilots because I get a lot of pilots as an actor to read. It was the most exciting pilot I read. It was so unexpected. And it was so well done. And I, I was just like, oh, my God, how are they going to do that? I guess you did it. I'm well, not going to say what you did. But. We, the, the pilot, uh, David Nutter directed the pilot, who's kind of the um, king of pilot directing. And actually, we were, Traveler was the 12th pilot he's directed in a row that got picked up to series. David Nutter and I worked together on 21 Jump Street. Wow. Yes. Yeah, he's a right. really, really sweet really guy sweet from guy. what I recall. Yeah, no, he's phenomenal. What was, what was then tricky... Um, which is tough with any series is for the the regular episodes after the pilot you then have half as much money as you had on the pilot and you have half as many shooting days as you had on the pilot so the, these pilots now have gotten to be these huge elaborate expensive mini movies and then the network gets all excited and picks up the show and then you have to figure out you know bringing it way down to reality and how to make on half the money and half the time a really really exciting series that works in a pattern that you can repeat it week after week after week after week so that was it was really fun to figure out a way to do that we actually ended up which i think really helped us actually as a first year series is abc ended up only um ordering eight episodes since we're going to be on in march there will only air eight this first season so we were able to really focus on those eight and i think we did end up making eight great hours of television i can't imagine although hopefully we'll find out but right now the idea of having to do that like 22 or 23 or 24 times a year is just mind-boggling but if we get a second season we'll get the chance to try and figure that out but again um what while the um the processes are very different in television of how everything comes to be and how the business of it works and the having to do episode after episode after episode is very different the actual shooting process again is the same you know it's you're you're there you've got your script you've got your budget you've got your cast and you're just trying to make the best thing best product possible i want to ask you one kind of weird question here this is just do you ever as a producer 
it's such a monumental task producing one of these big films. Do you ever get to a point where you're like, oh no, this is impossible. I'm not going to be able to accomplish this. Well, I, I think that, I mean, I've never, I wouldn't say I've had that experience with the actual production of it, but I do think that that happens more in the development period along the lines of, oh no, this is never going to work. This just isn't, it's not going to come together. You know, it's not going to, this project isn't going to happen. We're never going to get a cast attached or we're not going to get a budget that the studio will let us make the movie for. Um, those are sort of the biggest hurdles. I mean, you do, um, you know, and especially at a studio level, they're not green lighting the movie until they, until you've done extensive budgeting, scheduling, often casting, script work. So, in order to even get the chance to make it, you've gotten to a point where you actually can make it for what you can make it for. So hopefully it would, you're not in that situation, you know, then that situation, it would be less likely that it's the producer feeling that it's more likely that it's the studio feeling that at the time of deciding whether to make the movie or not. And they decide not to make the movie. You know, it's like, this is never going to happen. Like I, the studios thinks this isn't going to come together for the amount of money that they say it's going to, or this for the amount of money this movie's going to cost, it doesn't. It's not worth it. It'll never have enough potential, enough commercial potential. Um, I think in the independent world, you could be more likely to get to that point, especially like if you're, God forbid, spending your own money or you raised all this money and you have a certain amount of money to make the movie and you were your own boss, and then you could get to a point where you're like, holy shit, this is impossible. But since we've had limited experience in the independent world, we haven't come up against that yet. Well, this is great that you've taken this time to spend with us, and it's been really informative for me. Um, we're at the, sac- the section now where we're going to have to wrap it up. But first, we have the film bites. And uh, we're going to ask Bruce if he's got a film bite. This is some, a little piece of information that the uh, first-time filmmaker can use out there. Something very pragmatic and tangible that they can probably do right now if they're in the process of making their film or planning to make their film or some piece of advice that's critical that would save them a great deal of trauma. We'll give you a moment to think about that. (laughs) Well, I have one that you tell me, I'll say it and then you tell me whether it's relevant because it's not, it's really might be a little less for filmmakers than for people trying to make their way in the business, although... Okay. Um, my, what are we calling them? Film bite. <clears throat> my film bite is approach every job with 120% effort as if it is the dream job that you're working towards. If your job on the set is to get the actor a cup of coffee, you devote everything you have to giving them the most exquisite, perfectly temperatured, perfectly tasting, perfectly delivered coffee you possibly can. Because if you're, if you're thinking, well, th- what I really want to do is direct, and you know, when I'm a director, that's when I'll really bring my passion, but this is just my day job that I'm doing to make my way up, you're never going to get to directing because you're going to get um, eclipsed by the person who is giving their everything to the job you're doing right now. So that would be my advice is give everything you've got to the job you're doing right now to make sure that you someday are going to get to do the stuff that you really want to do in the business. And I just want to say that from watching Bruce, because 
I've watched Bruce through this entire, his entire history in this business, and I'll tell you, he works harder than anybody I know. He works, I mean, this is a guy that gets up at ungodly hours for years that is never home, that if he's in town for a dinner, you better grab it because it'll be eight months before you see him again, that drove his same car that he had from college for like six years after he was already working for Steven Spielberg, who never, um, never did anything, as he just said, without doing it one million percent. And really, but the great thing, though, was really enjoyed it. Like it was a party. He had to get up at five in the morning and work till three in the morning. It was a party to him and never stopped and took the time. Really, I don't even think to this day stopped to took the time and go, oh, my God, look where I am. Look what I've done. It's always from what I can tell about working, working, working really hard and certainly playing equally hard when when that moment opens up and you know, and not whining. Never heard the guy whine, ever. So very, very inspirational in terms of that. And also, nothing was handed to him. I mean, I, you do say that your father knew somebody at Warner. I mean, honestly, I feel that that's a minuscule thing because he knew nobody. He just worked his ass off. And now he literally knows everybody. And there isn't anybody in town that wouldn't, want to work with him or do something with him because they know, A, he's, ex he's going to do an amazing job, and he's got really, really good taste, and he's not going to let you down, I'm sure, as Alan Ball or Sam Mendes or any of these guys know. So, I mean, it's really a nose-to-the-grindstone sort of thing that put you where you are, in my opinion. Well, thank you. That was worth doing this in and of itself to have my fabulous friend Kamala say such nice things. Well, that's great. So we're going to end on that note. If you have any questions for us or, or for Bruce, uh, email us at joel at fatfreefilm.com. Oh, and our next guest is, can I say? Sure. Our next guest will be Leonard Nimoy. Whoa. <laughs>